Welcome to the Capable Civilian Podcast. I'm Alex Fox. My guest today is David Amerland, journalist, author, consultant, five-time national British Taekwondo champion, technology guru, and spokesman for the Derby Online Fitness Initiative. David is extremely knowledgeable about a wide array of topics, and he's really good at connecting the dots between the big picture of what's happening in the global scene and what it takes to be successful at our individual goals. If you're ready for a wide-ranging and thought-provoking discussion, please enjoy my conversation with David Amerland. David, thank you very much for joining me here today. You're very welcome. I'm really excited to be here. Let's start off, David, if you don't mind telling us a little bit about uh, your background and what you do as your day job. <laughs> well, my day job uh, differs depending who I'm talking to, really, and who I'm, I'm sort of dealing with. Um, I'm a writer, primarily. I'm a journalist. I write about um, the web and uh, technical issues in search. I consult with some corporations in their social media accounts. I help with uh, search um, teams in order to bring their knowledge up to speed and understand what they have to do. And I also help a little bit with branding with some companies and data mining. So that's what I do <laughs> in a nutshell. Terrific. And the reason that you and I actually connected was through something totally different, which is the, mm. uh, the Derby project. Exactly, yes. So, so exactly. maybe tell uh, the listeners a little bit about what that is and how you got involved with it. Yeah, okay. Well, um, the Derby project is about as radical a transformation of fitness as you can probably get to. And hopefully we'll be able to unpack this a little bit. But my first instance with that, my first contact is when they came to me and they said, look, you know, we need a little bit of help with search. We need a little bit of help with uh, internal um, sort of data structuring and perhaps maybe a little bit of consulting in terms of branding. And that's how it started. Um, and I, I've got a f background in fitness, which goes back... I've been active in martial arts for about um, 36 years now. Uh, I've got a black belt in Taekwondo, which is a second degree black belt. I've got a black belt in karate. I've done boxing. I did competitive martial arts for 10 years. And I, I still train every day. So fitness is very much part of my identity. And... Uh, because of that, I sort of, you know, gradually became more and more involved with the project. They have a great team. Um, and now I help sometimes put together the martial arts programs. We um, look at some of the exercises which are based in um, um, boxing and uh, combat sports and weapons. And we sort of work with that. So I have uh, a multiplicity of roles within that project. And my initial, not to diminish you in any way, but my initial invitation was to is her name pronounced Nila Ray? Nila Ray? Nila Ray. That's Nayla, right. Yeah. yeah. And she's, uh, she's incredibly busy, as you can probably yeah. imagine. And she said she uh, hates doing interviews. You'll do the interview. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Well, I do a lot of speaking internationally. I talk to companies and company executives um, about a lot of things, um, primarily branding and search and data mining. Uh, so I have um, perhaps an easier task at this when it comes to presenting and because within the derby project we all do um, as many things as we can in what we're good at i sort of have become the uh the public face of it if you like by dint of my experience more than anything else um Naila's great at ideas she's really driven very focused she just doesn't like being very public i suppose and i can't place your accent what what is your background uh, <laughs> I'm Australian originally. Okay. 
Uh, I lived in Britain for a very long time. I've um, over the last 10 years, I've been um, talking to audiences internationally, and that's both in Asia and Europe. So over that time, uh, although English is the language of communication, the uh, you know the audience itself it's a second language or third language, so they're not very proficient, and I tend to sort of speak as clearly as I can. <laughs> and my accent has changed and morphed over the years. That explains it. Um, so you mentioned that uh, the Derby Project, the, the goal is to, to transform fitness. Mm, so right, yeah. for people who are not familiar with it, what is it? Okay. I mean, if we look at fitness right up to the end of the 20th century, essentially it's always been something which has been, um, from a logical point of view, it's something which we know is good for us and it should be something we should be engaged with. But from a practical point of view, there have always been barriers and it's always been locked behind some kind of paywall. It's either behind a gym where you have to pay membership or you need special equipment or you need special shoes, you need special time, you need special knowledge even. You know, you know there's always something which you had to either overcome in order to access it or pay for it or become part of a club or part of some kind of initiation thing. And it's always it was always a barrier. Instead of something which was all inclusive, it was something which appeared to be exclusive. Essentially, Nail Array's um, vision, which is quite um, um, sort of revolutionary, is that fitness is a, a right, not a privilege. We all need it, and arguably the people who need it the most are the ones who can least afford it in terms of a club membership or special equipment or special shoes or expensive sort of sports, uh, sports paraphernalia. And her vision was how to basically break that barrier and make it available to all and make it accessible for everybody. So essentially the DRB project is exactly that. It doesn't matter who you are, where you live, what your status is, what your ethnicity is, what your sex is. All you need to do is join a community of fitness in the of fitness mind individuals. You can do it at any level you want. You can do it on your own, you can do it with friends, you can join the hive and meet other people across the world. So essentially, it's all about giving you access to what you need at your own level of comfort, if you like, and also at your own speed and your own kind of um, standard, if you like. You know, I mean, we have all felt at one point or another where you go into a club and you're the least fit person there. <laughs> and everybody's looking at you and you feel stupid. And it shouldn't be like that because we all essentially start from zero. It doesn't matter how good you are. If you go into a different context, you start from zero because you need to acquire a different set of physical skills. And more importantly, you need to develop the neurological skills which allow your body to move in a certain way. That takes time, it takes effort, it takes somebody to help you perhaps in some way, and it takes perseverance. And left to our own devices, we would never really do it very well because you know we you know it accumulates these are barriers which defeat us over over time, and Derby is there to remove all those barriers. It's there to say, hey, it doesn't matter who you are, it doesn't matter how good you are, or how bad you are. We all start in the same place. If you join the the forum of the of the website, which is called the Hive, we have a rule there that we're all equal. Never mind how long you've been doing it, and we're all there to support each other. So you immediately have a ready-made support network. And that's really important if you're actually doing anything which has to do with fitness. Uh, if there's a rule which we can guarantee is that on our own, we will always fail. It doesn't matter how good we are or how bad we are. 
Um, this is the reason why athletes have um, team members. This is why boxers have managers. I mean, you know, you get a boxer, he's superb. He knows what he has to do. He knows how to fight. He knows how to train himself. So why can't he do it? Why does he need a boxing manager? Why does he need a trainer? He needs people to basically support him. So the moment that he fails or the moment he takes it easy on himself, they say, hey, look, you got to step it up. you got to do this. You can't let yourself go to pieces. Keep it together. Let's go to the next level. Don't worry. It's been a bad day. That's fine. We'll have a good day tomorrow. So these are the things which allow us to become better than what we are. And they can only happen when we connect with other people and we have that kind of support. And Derby provides it automatically. The role of the manager is so important. After the Ronda Rousey's most recent loss, um, yes, yeah. a lot of my friends and colleagues who are in the MMA world, none of them were blaming Ronda Rousey. They were all blaming her manager. They're all saying that, yes. that he let her down because she's a superb yeah. athlete. He just yeah. didn't give her the skills that she needed. And so I thought that's... Yeah, I mean, see that, that's exactly right because she's a fighter. She is, you know, from, from a great point of view, from a determination point of view, she's A1. You know, she's an Olympian. She has what it takes to get to a superb level. So when you say, well, you know, she wasn't prepared well enough. Well, that's not her mental preparation. That's not a physical preparation in terms or even her psychological preparation. It's the technical side, which perhaps you need your team to step up and say, hey, this, what you're doing, you know, you're doing it really well, but you're taking it easy on yourself because you can do it. Let's go to the discomfort part of it. Let's go out beyond your comfort zone and find out what you really can do so you can step your game up. And, and that's where she was let down. So I would say that perhaps a lot of the criticism is, is quite rightly placed. Now, when I first became aware of the Derby Project, it was before it was called Derby. It was just called Nayla Ray. Um, That's right, yeah. Why did it change and how is it? Because there was no hive initially either. It was just the programs. So maybe talk a little bit about because you mentioned the community. So beyond the yeah. community aspect, there are also a multitude of different programs that people can choose, most of which they can use at home. Uh, my, yeah, my favorite yeah. is the Fighters Codex, which I think you probably had something to do with. Um, I did, yes. I so maybe talk a little bit about that. Okay. I mean, let's talk about the progression of this. Essentially, you know, this is one of those things that just happened. You know, Naila Ray was on the web and primarily she was in Google+. And she started in that, um, that environment to share her own personal pro training programs. And, the, you know, the, the, the response was fantastic. A lot of people liked it. A lot of people enjoyed it. She ended up answering a lot of questions. And after a few weeks, maybe a couple of months of doing that, she thought, well, you know, maybe I can just put them on my website and, you know, share them that way. And perhaps it'll be a lot easier than answering questions. And also having a centralized resource would be a lot easier than having, you know, losing them in the stream. So that's what she did. And that's when nailarray.com was created. And that sort of grew, you know, she was on her own. She was doing everything herself. There was no team. There was nobody else there, nothing. And, you know, it is like haphazard as you do on your own. Sometimes there were a lot of workouts. Sometimes there'd be weeks and weeks and nothing would come out and so on. And then as the site's popularity grew uh, to the point where, you know, she was getting almost a million visitors a month, she thought, you know, it's time to sort of get bigger. Um, and she couldn't do it on her own. And you can't have a team under nailarray.com. I mean, you could, but she's against this kind of thing because it, it feeds into the cult of the personality and mm. she's not really into it. So she thought, you know, again, fitness shouldn't be personality driven uh, because then you're trying to be a particular person and it shouldn't be about that. It should be, you should be trying to be the best version of the person you are. 
which is what DRB is all about. So instead of saying, oh, you know, be like Neil Array or be like Arnold Schwarzenegger or be like Jean-Claude Van Damme, great role models by all means, but, you know, at the end of the day, the person you're fighting against always is you. It's your limitations, your perceptions, your mental barriers holding you back. And if you compare yourself to somebody else, chances are you will fail because they have fought and overcome that battle already and they make it look easy. And also the obstacles they have overcome are arguably different to yours. So the, their path to where they got to is different to yours. You need to find your own path. And, and that's how, you know, after a lot of effort, she thought, well, you know, she came up with a name, Dare Be, which is basically a play on words. It's dare to be. And also she liked the fact that bees are the foundation of pretty much everything we have in the world in terms of food and life and so on. And they're hardly visible. Nobody sees them. And she thought, you know, it's a very self-effacing kind of value. So based on that, Derby was born, which is almost two years old now. And that's when I was really sort of approached to come on board and say, hey, you know, we've got this project, a team got together. So we have now team members who are in Germany and Canada and Greece and the UK. And I think there's one member who's in the Philippines. Oh, no, sorry, Belgrade. So, you know, the team is pretty scattered. And we all sort of uh, get together online, we discuss the different projects, we allocate work, um, we look at the, um, how the programs are put together. And essentially, that in itself is quite fascinating because we come up with ideas of how we can structure things and everything has a particular logic. And then that needs to be tested. So it goes out to test groups. They tested in different environments, so different age groups and different sexes and different skill levels to them. We get a lot of feedback, so sometimes we modify the exercises, we modify the flow of the workouts, we um, put different things together to make it more accessible. Then it goes back to be tested again. So you're looking at about three months for each program that comes out or each workout. That is very interesting. I had no idea. Now, just from a, a business standpoint, you said she was getting a million visitors a month and she came to you and you're, uh, you're a leader in your field. So there's no advertising. So how is all this supported? Yeah, that's right. I asked the same thing. <laughs> <laughs> and she goes, well, okay. Um, she thought, we don't want to do product endorsements because the moment you do that, essentially you are slanting what you do and then you're beholden to a particular product you can't, or a particular company, you can't criticize them in any way because they're paying you, which then begins to um, erode your impartiality. And fitness has suffered way too long about this. You know, we, we have seen every year there's the latest big thing. And you know there's a lot of money being thrown at it. And the moment so much money is being thrown at something and promoted, you know that you know it, it can't possibly be that good. And every year we have something new. So... It's all, it's all about that. So there was no, no promotion of products, no sponsorship. She thought about advertising and she thought, no, you know, because that becomes too intrusive to the people who actually get to the website. And also we couldn't vet it all the time. So, you know, you could perhaps get to promote adverts, promoting things which we wouldn't personally like. So after about uh, six months, of self-financing it, and that's all she was doing. You know, she, the team, all of us are putting in a lot of time, which is voluntary time. Uh, once she approached me, bearing in mind that I usually talk to large corporations, the budget is so small that it's laughable. And the only reason I got involved is because I actually like the idea 
um, in terms of fitness because that was you know something which I personally felt very strongly about, and and a lot of you know everybody in the team feels the same way about this. So essentially, um, because of that, we sort of the first six or nine months we were running on pretty much empty, um, and uh, as the costs accumulated, she thought, well, perhaps we can see if we can work with donations. And there we had, luckily we have the Wikipedia model, which shows that it is viable. And the question was, you know, how strongly do we need to make this felt? Do we sort of plaster all over the website? Do we just put a little link? And we thought, well, let's try with just a little link and see how it happens. And it's, it's working out quite well. The site now is basically covering all of its costs. We have a development budget, which we never used to have before. So we just rolled out a new programming on the website, which allows people to create profiles. And that took like um, three months of coding. So we had to hire a coder, run the tests, and we rolled it out just today. So it went off without a hitch. Fantastic. Congratulations. <laughs> Thank you. That was quite uh, scary when you do that because you know, the site is so big. Um, but uh, it, it actually went in you know, very nicely because of all the testing. Uh, that was done but it was self-financed through donations and that in itself is quite groundbreaking because it's not just that people give some money it's that people giving money are doing two things first of all you know whenever you donate you feel good yourself because you know you're doing something good but at the same time by donating they're allowing the project to exist for a lot of people who actually haven't got any money to access it or donate or get into any kind of fitness. So essentially, every dollar that is donated to the website is, if you like, a vote towards the world which we would all like to see. A world where things of value are accessible to all regardless of whether you are you know, some sort of corporate big wheel or somebody who is you know, living in your mom's basement, for instance. That shouldn't matter. You know, People always matter. And we take as derbies, one of the core values is that either everyone matters or no one does. Mm. You can't say, well, you know, somebody matters more than other, somebody else, because it doesn't work that way. It doesn't work that way really on a person-to-person basis. And we have had the perception that it works like that in the world because of the artificiality of divisions put in place for very obvious reasons. The moment you strip those away and you get to the personal basis, well, people's value is incredible. And we just need to uncover it. We just need to connect and actually see it and help them develop. And that's what, again, it's what the core derby values are all about. It's really interesting and inspiring to hear that it has been such a labor of love behind the scenes. That is really powerful. I really admire the the philosophy behind it. And something that if people haven't visited the site, they may not realize, it's also fun. It's deliberately designed to be fun. The program's... Her original programs were specifically based on TV shows. And I guess it was, there were a few lawyer um, letters written, and she had to uh, modify that a little bit. Um, That's but, right. We had a lot of fun about it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but there's still a strong pop culture emphasis that she's trying to get through to people in a way that's fun. And there's also, uh, which has come about recently, some gamification. You've actually, the Pandora program that's right yeah. so maybe talk about that a little bit how how yeah the, the idea of making it fun and how you're using technology to assist that well this is again something which came through relatively organically now the team itself is very 
varied if you like you know there are individuals there which are you know fitness enthusiasts there are some people with martial arts experience there's a couple of people myself included who have had a long time um, experience in a competitive environment and were very driven and when you sort of you know for me you know when you start training I know why I train I don't need anybody to motivate me and uh, I can't understand why people can't get motivated <laughs> but that's not really true because, you know, we discussed it and we said, okay, you know, why can't people get motivated? And it, 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 it's very true that if you don't have a particular target, and even if you do, if you say, well, you know, I want to be fit for summer, I want to lose five pounds of weight, I want to feel better in my skin, what, whatever your target is, after a while, the everyday pressure of getting there, the entire thing of um, having to if you like, overcome your own personal limitations, which is a struggle in itself, just to train begins to wear you out and wear you down. So this is one of the reasons why we start every year with great resolutions and we never get to finish them. You know, the gyms are full by January 15th and empty by February 15th. So within a four-week time span, all our, you know, best intentions disappear and evaporate. And you've got to think, why? Why does this happen? Well, it happens because we overload ourselves. We say, I've got to do this and I've got to do this. And it is me and I'm failing. And the voice in our heads constantly tells us what we're doing wrong and how weak we are and how bad we are and how we don't know this and how we'll never get where we want to because we're not determined enough. And we listen to that voice. And if we stop listening to it, if we become somebody else, if you had to step into the Batman suit, for instance, that's it. You stop being you, and I stop being me, and we become, crime, crime, you know, crime fighters of the night. <laughs> and suddenly, nothing is impossible because you stepped into somebody else's skin. You sort of sidestepped all the negative barriers, which are self-created, and normally take an incredible amount of effort and and a support team to help you overcome. You know, this is the territory of Olympic athletes and boxers and competitive martial artists. You know, they have people who actually help them. So suddenly, you know, if you do that, you find things easier. It is easier to motivate yourself. It is easier to train hard. And also it's fun because suddenly, you, you know, you're Batman. You say, well, but there's nothing Batman can't do. And there's no way he's going to give up just because he's tired. So I'm going to do this set. I'm going to do the other set. Oh, and he kills you, but you do it. And, then, you know, if you're in an environment like the Hive, which grew out of the Derby connection to begin with when the transition was made from Nail Array to Derby. You get people from all over the world and what becomes evident is that we all have very much the same sort of limitations, the same sort of likes, the same dislikes, the same problems and we overcome them in very similar ways. So the whole fun element came out of that discussion as a team on how do we continue to train, how do we inspire others to do the absolute best of what they can do and then improve on that. And the role model of the RPG in fitness came out of this. Uh, Naylor Ray's idea in, initially was to use existing films to basically create a fan fiction thing and work from there. You know, you could train as Batman, for instance, or you could train as, as you know, as Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Um, as that took off in popularity, of course, uh, the companies in question that held the um, intellectual property rights um, started thinking there's money to be made in this <laughs> because suddenly RPG fitness became a thing and they licensed their images to specific um, gyms, I think, or specific workouts. So they came and said, look, you guys can't do this anymore. 
So, you know, we took everything down from that respect. You know, we didn't have that many programs. Uh, the fun element itself is, is throughout the project in terms of the workouts we put together. And then that led to the discussion of, well, why don't we create a detailed program which takes you through a narrative where you actually become somebody else on a day-to-day -day basis. So the hero's journey was created, which is, uh, I think it's 90 days. And that actually, on every, you have to make moral judgments, and the moral judgments allow the storyline to develop. Now, depending on the development of the storyline, you, you know, the path changes. Then you have Pandora, and Pandora has two 60-day um, parts, so it's 120 days. And they, um, they basically allow, allow you to go into a different world, which is really brutal in terms of what it exists. You know, you think of something like The Walking Dead, almost, uh, times 10. <laughs> and then every, every decision you make in that world has an impact on, on yourself and how you develop and the storyline and narrative and the character. But at the same time, it also has an impact on the things you have to do and the physicality of what's demanded of you. So you develop as you go through it. And that, you know, the mental component, and we have all felt this, is really critical when it comes to the physical part. You know, if we go jogging and we think, okay, it's really early in the morning, it's cold, I've just left my bed, I'm really tired, and I jog and, oh, it's freezing, and that's all you're feeling, it's really, really bad. If you leave your bed and you've got... Um, maybe you know a great song on a great album to listen to, and that album transports you somewhere else. You can go through a run, and it doesn't matter how how hard it is, you have hardly felt it. Your body's done the same thing in both cases. What has been different is the focus, the attentional direction, if you like, of your mind, and the attentional direction is what actually allows us sometimes to overcome our um, limitations and become way better than we can be. So with role-playing, we managed to trick the mind long enough to fool the body to perform better. And the moment we do something, suddenly we, it belongs to us. It's our own creation. We can do it again and again and again. It's like the four-minute barrier in the four-minute mile in, uh, sorry, the four-minute barrier, um, four barrier in, in running, in running a, a mile. Uh, until uh, Roger Bannister did it, there were experts saying that that's it, you can't do it. The human body simply is not designed for that. And the moment he broke that record, within a month, another two um, record holders were, were, had broken it. And within a year, another three appeared. So it's, it's a case of believing what you can do. And if you believe you can do something, then you can really do something. Have you gotten a lot of people participating in these uh, extended programs? Because you have programs mm. and challenges, and they're a little different, and then workouts. So that's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Everything. Yeah. I mean, one of the things, one of the, I uh, suppose, the strengths of Derby is that we try to create as many different things for everybody, because we understand there's no such thing as one uh, size fits all, and if anything, you know, um, what modern uh, fitness science has given us is that fitness is increasingly personalized because everybody reacts and responds differently to the same training. So we try to, to give as many different things as possible. We have the workouts, and the workouts are one-off thing, which you can do if you want to. I mean, you can do the same one again and again if you want to, but essentially each one is between 15 and 20 minutes. And if you take the breaks into account, you can you know go as, as much as 15 minutes of training, but you're only training for about 20 minutes uh, tops in terms of the, of the physical exercise involved. 
Um, then we have the programs, and the programs, again, take you through roughly the same thing through the day with specific variations so you can recover. And they tend to be between um, 30 and 90 days at the most. And then you have the challenges and challenges for a month, and you're doing something very specific. You know, it could be perhaps the sugar challenge, where you give sugar for you know you give sugar for a month, and that sounds difficult. <laughs> it is really <laughs> difficult, believe me. <laughs> so, you know, you know, you can do it for a month. You think it's only a month, right? And the thing is, if you can overcome that in your body, which has to be basically something which starts off in your mind, what you develop is mental strength primarily. And the mental strength which you develop in one aspect is transferable to every other aspect. So if you can give sugar up for a month, well, you've got a kind of discipline that allows you to get past the 10 push-up barrier and do 12. If you can do 12, well, by the end of the year, you can do 25 or 30 or 40 and so on. And that idea of progression is strongly reflected in the program. So they start off the first day, like, okay, this is pretty easy. But by the, the day 30, you're doing a lot more than you thought you would be. Uh, certainly yeah. for the Fighters Codex, that's, and I've gone through the Fighters Codex six or seven times. I really like that program a lot. So well, I'm so glad. Um, <laughs> we, it took us a lot of. Yeah. That was the first time we brought out like that, and uh, I, you know, I was I was uh, involved from the beginning, as you can imagine, and it took a lot of convincing for the team that you know average people could do it. And then we tested it, and the feedback we got, we got was really encouraging, but also, you know, a lot of, there were a lot of things which we had to iron out. So it actually took a lot of work. It took us about five months, I think, before it actually came out. So I'm, I'm really glad you like it. Yeah, and there's a very strong conditioning component to it. That yes. You start off, and especially if you haven't done anything like that in a while or, or ever, you're going to feel it. And then, yes. But if you, yeah. if you do it, go through it a couple times, then you start feeling really good. And so... Um, That's right, yeah. I mean, one of the things which, uh, again, central therapy is that fitness essentially is a journey. It's not a destination. And that means that, you know, you just go through it. You know, you go through peaks and troughs, and sometimes you're at a really good level, and then you drop a little bit, and you develop a you know, further skill, and you do something else. And it's a constant challenge, because if you're not constantly challenging what you can do, then you're only treading water. If you're only treading water, you're losing ground, <laughs> to mix metaphors. I saw a great um, little video yesterday on Facebook that somebody was sharing. It was um, The idea was they took hockey players and had them do f uh, American football drills, which uh -huh. was no yeah. problem. They're running and jumping. And then they took uh, football players and had them get put on skates and try to do hockey, right? And in that asymmetrical environment, they couldn't function at all. Yeah. And yeah, I, it exactly. reminds me of what you had said a few minutes ago about that everybody starts from zero. So even yeah. if you're good at something, uh, you're going to be at the same level as somebody who's never done something else. Mm. So yeah, I absolutely. Think absolutely. I, I have a direct example from that. I was in the um, UK competitive team for, for, for uh, five years. And um, we trained for three months with uh, the Manchester uh, Ballet. Hmm. So, you know, we went there, you know, we were martial artists and we're pretty strong and fit and young and everything. And we were there with attitude. And the first session, the girls kicked our butts. <laughs> we, just, we just could not understand how they could do half the things they could do. So it was a very humbling experience. And that really drove the, the lesson home, that fitness is so multi-layered. There's so many elements to it. But it doesn't matter what you master. There's more to actually overcome. And, you know, you, you can't just think, think oh, I've got the speed or I've got the strength or I've got the flexibility or I've got the technique. 
it has to be a compilation of everything and you really constantly work at it. That ties into something else which I really like about the Derby programs, which is that they're primarily body weight based. Yes. And that's one thing that really the last year or so that I've become more aware of is that the degree to which sort of typical weight training, especially over a period of years, builds up certain imbalances in the body. Mm. And, mm. and I don't have any formal training. This just from my own experience. It seems that body weight training will correct those imbalances if done mm. properly. It does. Your, your perception is 100% correct. And there's a scientific basis to this. And, and this is how it works. Essentially, all of us here on planet Earth are fighting against the gravity well of the planet. So here's our weight and here's our mass. And we're fighting against the planet who's trying to pull us down. And if we all go to the moon, suddenly we become super athletes. We run faster. We don't get as tired. We can jump higher. We can lift rocks, you know, 10 times our body weight and everything. And the only thing that's different is not our mass. It's the, it's the gravity. So essentially, if we can somehow learn to train in a different gravity environment, then we become stronger, we become fitter, we can do amazing things. The only way you can really do that effectively is if you use your body, putting muscles and muscle groups under strain so that they work together under a lot of strain and they get tired and they learn to function as a power group. And that's the difference. I mean, this is where body weight training actually gives you fantastic results because your body becomes your own. You begin to move it better. You begin to have more control of it. You feel you feel better in your own skin in terms of suddenly, you know, you, you want your body to do something and it does it. And you think, you know, this is pretty amazing. That takes a lot of time. It takes a lot of effort. It takes perseverance because you are fighting against your body all the time. You know, if you do push-ups, for instance, it, you know, you're struggling to lift yourself up from the floor because the whole planet is pulling you down. But what's lifting you up is not just your arms. It's your arms and your shoulders and your chest and your back. It's your quads. It's your hip flexors. It's your glutes. And it's your core. And if you have all those things and they're really, really strong and they're really, really good, then you do some push-ups and you think, whoa, it's like he's got no weight whatsoever. Well, he has a lot of weight. It's just that you know, they all work together so well that they spread the load and your body becomes lighter. So, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, and speaking of becoming lighter and fighting against your body, you know, there, it's no secret that, especially in the Western world, a lot of people struggle with their weight. Yes. And there is, a, in the Derby program, there's a nutrition component and meal plans and so on. Um, to what degree has that been incorporated into the overall message of Derby? And, and are there other, is that going to be expanded? Well, let's start with the easy answer first. Yeah, yes, we have plans to expand this. We do this incrementally. Um, we don't want to get into the diet fads. So everything that gets put together takes a lot of research, takes a lot of um, uh, sort of a trials. So you know, nail it right, try some of these with different groups to see what the accessibility is like because we also – you know, having a global audience, we need to be aware that, you know, the ingredients we can get perhaps in, in the U.S., you may not be able to get in the Philippines and vice versa. So we need to, to be able to find um, things which work the same for everybody. What we don't want to get into is the importance that people put on diet as, you know, losing weight because it shouldn't be about that. Yes, indeed, in the modern world, <clears throat> we all struggle against the weight problem. 
which is very, very real. The reasons behind that are also very real. You know, we are designed biomechanically to work anywhere between 12 and 14 hours a day. And we end up at most training, if we're lucky, one hour, one hour a day. And you think, okay, how do you reconcile the two? How do you actually do it? Well, it's a gradual thing. We need to first be aware that we live in very ancient bodies in terms of the way that uh, they work from a neurobiological um, sort of way. And we live in a very modern world. So, you know, the things which your body does to help you survive and would have been perfectly fine in 1000 uh, BC. Well, you know, in 2017, when you go to the supermarket and you can get, you know, a week's worth of calories in one day, <laughs> your body hasn't factored that in. So we need to sort of learn to educate ourselves a little bit in terms of how we use our physicality, the way we structure our day, the way we structure our training, and then also gradually the way we structure our eating. And rather than make it something which, you know, I have to go on a diet or I have to go on a fitness regime where, you know, I do three hours a day for a month, it is easier to make lifestyle choices that stick. So learn the foods which are good for you. By all means, go on a particular diet, but, you know, that's only for a while so you can achieve something or learn something and then incorporate some of that into your lifestyle. Um, go into, you know, a particular program, but again, you learn things about your physicality and how what your body can do so you can incorporate them into who you are and you make them part of, of your modern life, lifestyle. And if you do that, if we all do that, what we see is that being fit isn't magical and it stops being difficult so that's the the outcome and it's a gradual process and again it, it has to be on a non-judgmental basis you know there can't be the oh no excuses kind of approach because yeah everybody has a gazillion excuses for not being fit it can't be you're lazy you know eat more and exercise eat less and exercise more well you know yes that would do it but if it's that simple, we'd all be doing it, okay? And we're not, because it's not that simple. Life gets in the way, psychology gets in the way, lifestyle gets in the way. There's all these barriers. So we need to sort of gently understand how we create a kind of environment where we support each other towards achieving these very desirable goals and then also spread them to others and also make them stick for ourselves. And that it's a very sort of granular step-by-step -step approach. And I think that idea of sustainability is supported by the diversity that is offered here. I mean, there are some other, I don't want to name other programs because there's no advantage to it, but there are, there are other programs which are one size fits all. Every day you'll get a workout, a workout of the day and, you know, do that. Um, yeah. Whether you like it or not, or whether that is actually of benefit to where you are or not. Whereas through the Derby program, people can say, okay, this is what I need to work mm. on. This is what I want to work on. And it's almost like a Montessori approach where if as long as you're doing something, it's going to be good for you. Yeah, and, and that, that's the data-driven message we get from science today. We know that every one of us is individuals to a high extent. You know, we have different biocultures in our, in our gut. We have different biocultures in our skins. Our body cells uh, sort of um, uh, react differently to the same exercise regime. Um, so what actually is good for me may not be good for you and vice versa. But where we do see tremendous value is in actually listening to what works for people. So if there's something which, you know, you say, hey, you know, I found this shortcut, I found this great tip, I do this and I do that and it works. And I try it out and, whoa, it works for me as well. That's brilliant because you gave me that tip and, I, you know, we shared that idea. 
or I try it and it doesn't work, but because it didn't work for me, through that trial and error, I find something else which works for me. That has helped me also. So the you know the the very regimented approach where you know the bootcamp approach he says here it is we're going to do ten of this ten of that three of that and that's it you're going to have a bowl of rice and then you're going to get a glass of water <laughs> well that may work for some people perfectly well there's a lot of other people it won't work for and what do you do then you just exclude those people and you say I'm sorry you know you haven't got the tenacity or the makeup or the genes or whatever you know psychological profile is you need in order to get through this I think that's profoundly unfair. And, you know, in the 21st century, we shouldn't be creating that kind of division. So we try to create as much inclusivity as possible by having this multi-layered approach where, you know, you try as many programs as you like until actually something fits. And the moment it does, you realize that, hey, I can do this and I'm getting better. And that becomes a step which you need in order to go into the next one and the next one. And then you're on the next level and the next level after that. Yeah, I think if you start something with the knowledge that you can't continue it for more than a couple of months, then what's the point? Find, and that's yeah. what I like about Derby is that you can do it. You can do it over and over. You can do it uh, until you want to try something different and it's fine. You're not um, getting overtrained either because that's something that I found with, I've tried virtually every type of program out there over the years. And a lot of them, especially the more intensive ones, I mean, after 30 days, I'm a wreck. My shoulders are yeah. destroyed. My knees are destroyed. And it takes me another month just to recover so I can get back to a, a normal type of workout. And I yeah. think that yeah. level of overtraining, especially for people who aren't in their teens, you know, um, is really important. I mean, people underestimate the value of recovery and the importance of recovery. It's not just about, like you said, not just eat less, work out more, because if you take that to an extreme, you're really going to hurt yourself. Yes. Yeah. I mean, that's it, isn't it? Because, uh, I mean, again, what you what you said is, from your own experience, has tremendous value because it it shows the the areas where we've actually been so wrong in the setup of fitness in the past. Um, we create these um, barriers which appear, you know, to create specific status points, for instance, you know, the people who can take the bootcamp approach or, you know, those who can get through this particularly tough session and, and last and, and stay with it. And they're the special ones and everybody else should just drop by the wayside. And it shouldn't be that. I mean, fitness really is something we all have a right to have. You know, it shouldn't be a privilege just for the few. It shouldn't be something which you're judged on because the moment you're trying, I think that's brilliant. That's all it takes. And it doesn't matter whether, you know, you're 50 pounds overweight and you're doing five push-ups or you're a gym rat and you can do 50. It doesn't matter because as long as you're trying, you're on the same level. You're both trying to achieve the same goal. Our personal goals will always change because that horizon always recedes. You know, you know however good we are, we want to become better. However fast we are, we want to be faster. However strong we are, we want to be stronger. That is brilliant. That's what actually drives us on. And what is holding us back most of the times is the judgment we have around us, our own perceptual barriers. So if we can just somehow remove those, if we get into a self-sustaining, supportive group where you say, hey, you know, you're trying, good on you. You know, try this and try that and see if it works. And if it fails, no worries. We know, well, let's see why it failed and let's try the other thing. I think that is amazing. You know, that's what actually empowers us and makes us better. And, you know, when we're talking about this as adults, right? So this is primarily, Derby is primarily a website for people who are grown up and they're looking to improve their fitness. 
But I think so much of what you're talking about really starts in schools. Mm. Either you're an athlete, right, and you have all the support yeah. and everything else, and the coaches telling you what to do and when, when to do and how to eat and so on, or you're not. And if you're not, then you're on your own. And it's funny because that's a double-edged sword because I was not an athlete in school. I was uncoordinated. I played hockey for one year, which is why I like hockey. But um, I always worked out by myself. And so after I finished high school and college, I just continued doing what I'd always done, and I have for the last 20 years. Whereas some of my friends who were very high-level athletes in their younger days have really deteriorated, let's say. Yeah, uh, so they've got no because they don't have somebody yelling at them saying, "Got to get up! Yeah. You got to run wind sprints!" Yeah. And so on. they lost the support group. And and see here, I mean, to your credit, you've turned our perceptual disadvantage into a strength because you had to do it on your own. You've become very self-motivated and self-focused, and you do what few people can do, which is train on your own and maintain that focus and maintain that pressure and actually do it. And your friends who had it easier in many ways because they were athletically inclined and they got, they became, you know, teachers' favorite kind of athletes and teachers created that support network which pushed them on and drove them. The moment they lost that, they fell. And what you said is also reflective of my own experience. You know, when I was a member of a team and, you know, I competed in a, in a competitive environment, I knew I was going up against people who were really good, so I couldn't slack off because they were training. And I couldn't slack off because my teammates were training. And when I stopped competing in 2000, my level dropped because suddenly there was no reason to train that hard. <laughs> you know, I, could, I was all right. I was pretty fit. So I thought I had to rework it in my head. I had to try really hard to find new ways to motivate myself because suddenly all that support environment vanished. All the reasons to train really hard and go through the hardship of you know, feeling exhausted at the end of a training session and getting up at 6 in the morning to do a 5-kilometer run. You know, that went. I could stay in bed in the morning and wake up at 8 and be at work at 9. <laughs> so uh, I, I fully appreciate what you're saying. And a lot of the things which we try within Derby is actually to create that instantly accepting support network. I mean, we do it through the website and we do it through the uh, programs and through the materials and the information and uh, the nutrition we provide. But we also do it um, and when I say we, you know, it's a very global we now because, you know, there are derbies all over the world in terms of approach. And if you come into the hive, it's an incredibly welcoming environment. And we've tried as a team very hard to maintain that, but it's been maintained by the members. You know, there's about 20,000 members in the hive at the moment. Wow. I think there's about nine to 10,000 daily active members. So there's no way that we could just moderate and maintain that because there's too many. They are genuinely welcoming and they're genuinely supportive of each other. And I've come across threads where somebody came in with a, what we would class a stupid question, I suppose, outside Derby. And everybody leapt in and they gave me a lot of welcoming advice and they helped him out. And they just went, oh, wow, this is such a welcoming forum. Well, that's just it. it you know, people connecting with people always are. And I think, you know, the divisions of the past, the kind of, do you even lift bro kind of culture? <laughs> that that is indicative of the artificial divisions we created for you know for those obvious status driven reasons. Within Derby they don't exist. And I think that reflects what you'll find at a really good gym, which is that the people who have bad attitudes and wanna uh, be hostile, they don't feel welcome and they leave. And yes. and the good yes. people remain and that's what you're exactly. creating online. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. And you know, there are you're quite right. There are some gyms which are actually excellent in this kind of environment. And 
you know, they're they're unfortunately the exception because it's so hard to actually achieve it. You know, a lot of gyms just go with the status quo. Now you work in data in technology, so what are the benefits? How can these these trends we're seeing now, big data, data mining, which you mentioned in mm. passing, how can these technologies benefit people rather than just the large organizations like corporations and governments that are using them now? Okay, I mean that's a that's a multi layered question. So let's unpack it a little bit. We live in a world which is really driven by data in in everything, and we ourselves are data. Everything we do. Everything our body does, the temperature it has at a particular time of the day, the fuel consumption consumption we have in a particular time of the day, what we drink, what we eat, what we burn as we move and exercise, our body weight, our strength, our muscle density. This is all data. These are all data points. We're only now becoming aware of how much data drives things and how much it changes things. And I'm going to give you one example of this. The classic, if you get injured, the classic response, and if you go across the web and look for it, it still springs up in a gazillion websites, is RICE. You have rest, ice, compression, elevation. It's a handy acronym. Everybody remembers it. Everybody brings it out like it's scripture. Coaches tell it to their, you know, their teams. If you get injured, this is what you do. Okay, that was developed in the 70s by a guy called Dr. Gabe Merkin. And he used a particular set of data at the time. He analyzed it and he said this is the best way of dealing with an injury. He went back recently to the same study, exactly the same data set. He used different analytical tools, which are a lot more granular, a lot more detailed. And looking at it, he saw an entirely different picture. He saw that if you actually applied rest, ice, compression, elevation, what you did is you restricted and constricted the capillaries. Sure enough, the moment of, of injury, you did not get as much bleeding caused by that, so you kept the swelling down. But with the new data that we have, we know that the swelling is caused by a response of the tissues, and that response itself helps the healing. So keeping the swelling down is not necessarily a good thing. Applying compression and ice reduces capillary action. So basically, it um, prolongs the healing process and takes longer to heal. And by actually applying elevation, which is rest, you also um, create an activity in the injured part of the body, which begins to weaken the muscles. So suddenly you have a, a condition where it takes longer to heal, the muscles themselves begin to weaken, you're losing conditioning. So when you recover, you have a longer recovery period to get back to where you started from. Using exactly the same sort of, exactly the data, the same data he had in the past, he's completely on his website himself, has said rice is no longer good enough, the moment you have an injury, what you should do is um, basically rest it. And then immediately the moment you can, you go through the training process where you try to work the injured part of the body gently. And if you do that, it increases circulation, it maintains muscle conditioning, it maintains muscle strength, it aids recovery. And then you're back in your sport, whatever that sport is, a lot faster, feeling a lot fitter and a lot stronger than you did in the past. And this is just one example of how we are basically revisiting and changing our approach to fitness and health and medicine because of data. And we are just at the beginning of it. Uh, we know that each body is different. We know that the advice which we give for one person may not necessarily be the same advice we should be giving to a million people. So we're trying to find ways to personalize this. Fitness devices, if we take it to a personal level like Fitbit and so on, 
they're relatively generic, so we you know we can't say that they're <laughs> very specific in what they do, but they also allow us to personalize our approach to our own fitness and mobility, and that's a good thing. Um, we have broader aspects of data mining when it comes to fitness. We know, you know, IBM, for instance, is now using Watson in a number of situations. Mm. Some of them are medically associated, so they're looking for the cure to cancer, for mm. instance, which is, which is very hopeful. But also they're looking at the way that medicine itself and is, is, is beginning to personalize fitness with a view to creating fitter people for the future with longer active lifestyles. We're learning, for instance, that age isn't a barrier the way we thought it was. Yes, your bones get more fragile, and yes, your muscles uh, get less dense, and yes, you get fewer neurons in each muscle strand, but only if you're inactive. <laughs> and you can get to the same point of, of um, fragility, if you like, if you're 20, if you're inactive sufficiently long. So we have to ask, why are older people inactive? And, you know, there, there are perceptual barriers to this, which we're trying to strip away. And they're driven by data and they're driven by specific examples. And now we have also a body of work which actually mines the achievements of people who are in their 70s and their 80s. We can see how their bodies respond and what kind of regime they had in place. And a lot of the times, you know, they didn't have a special diet. They didn't have a coach. What they did have is the belief that they shouldn't just, you know, go home and stay in bed all day just because they got past 40. And, you know, they're in their 70s and their 80s, and they're running marathons and climbing mountains, and they're taking part in bodybuilding competitions, and you think, you know, that's pretty amazing, right? I mean, a body can actually do it. So this is the things which are changing the entire picture, and they're driven by very concrete examples, by very concrete data, which allows us to revisit and revision, if you like, our entire concept of how fitness um, should develop. And we're only at the beginning, so... Where it lead, we have simply no idea, but it's going to be exciting. That's really fascinating. And you're, thus far, we've been speaking about physical fitness, but the mind and the body work together, right? And mm, we, talk, we talked about how you and I are sort of self-motivated. And I don't know about you, but for me, a big part of why I've stayed active is because it's kept me sane. There, yes. right? There's just like, there's just so much to deal with in life. If you can't ever move your body and get your mind off of whatever is bothering you and and beyond that, there are physiological things that happen, right, when you move your body that actually help your brain to feel better about whatever is happening. And I would be curious of your perspective of, of that. What is it, uh, where are we going in terms of integrating physical and mental fitness? Uh, 2,000 years ago, the Greeks had a saying. They used to say, a sound mind in a sound body. And it was a great soundbite. You know, I learned it at school back mm -hmm. in the 70s. You know, everybody said it, sound mind and sound body. What, what the heck does that even mean, right? The, the classical ideal. Yeah, exactly. We now have um, functional magnetic resonance imaging, which allows us to see what goes in, in the brain when something happens to the body. And the picture that is emerging out of that is that essentially, if there's no way that the brain can model something, you know, if the, you know, you can't model a move or you can't model a concept which uh, takes place inside it, then that thing can't exist. So I can show you how to sprint fast, for instance, but if your brain can't put that together, and then if you can't break down each move and show you internally, create a model which will allow your body to actually do that in a physical space, then you'll never be able to do it. So that connection between brain or mind and body is getting closer and closer to the to the point that they're now integrated. We know that there are neurotransmitters going throughout the body, 
We know that there are about 100,000 brain cells in the stomach, which gives an entire different meaning to the sense gut feeling. You know, when you're doing something, it feels great, and you know what it does, and you don't know how, but it just feels right. Well, how do you know? How, what is your instinct on this? How does it develop? Well, it comes from things. And the, the heart, the, the clusters of neurons in the heart that are like a exactly. second brain. Yeah, yeah. yeah, you feel that in your heart. You know, so essentially, the brain is not just the brain inside your head. It's only about, you know, um, one half to two kilograms of brain. But essentially, it's a network of connections flowing throughout your body. The neurotransmitters are going throughout your body. So your mood and your frame of mind affects everything. And there's another classic example of this. It's called the trigger. When you say, usually you see it in films, right? You see the hero, the hero is beaten, broken. He's practically defeated. You know, the villain stands over him, about to walk away, and the villain kicks a kitten, for instance. <laughs> and that becomes the trigger, right? That becomes the emotional trigger, where the kitten being kicked by the villain allows the hero to rise and, and overcome. And you think... Well, that emotional trigger shows, again, the connection of the neurotransmitters in your mind because it allows your perspective mentally in terms of your limitations, where you are and what you can do, to just vanish. And the moment that goes, you can do almost anything. Physically, we are designed to do incredible things. We don't know how incredible they can be. So by going in the modern world now deep into our minds, we're essentially beginning to unlock our bodies and... By working our bodies, we help our minds become sharper and more conditioned and more united, if you like. Um, very recently for a recent book, which I'm preparing, which will come out in November this year, hmm. um, I, I've interviewed about 100 snipers. Wow. And they're incredibly fit. And you think, okay, you know, they're incredibly fit and they do incredible things, but they, can't do, they don't do incredible things because they're fit. Their fitness levels are a reflection of what they've been through in the process of unlocking the power of their minds. And the only way you can really push your mind is if you push your body. You know, if you do, if you, if I ask you to walk, you know, 500 meters, you think, oh yeah, I do that and it's no problem. But if I ask you to walk 500,000 meters, you think, oh okay, in order to do that, my perception of my brain has, you know, my thinking has to change. Marathon runners, you know, anybody can run five kilometers, anybody can run. 10 kilometers, you can turn 15, 20. After 20, you have zero energy left, you know, physically. Your body's got zero calories. You can't burn anything else. So, you know, and you're tired. And you still have to do 21 kilometers, right? <laughs> How do you do that? And every marathon runner says, you know, we just think about it. You know, we focus. We, it's in our heads. And, and that's exactly right. That's what actually unlocks the ability of the body to do things. So... In many ways, what became apparent is that, you know, when I was talking to those snipers, they do incredible things because they feel they can, they believe they can, but also they know their capabilities and they work the synthesis of mind and body to a very finely honed edge and admittedly within their profession, very tightly um, sort of delineated parameters to actually do what we consider incredible feats. And what they do, we can do in different contexts. You know, if you have a, you know, you have a, to pull an all-nighter and then the next day you need to take an exam. On paper, it's impossible. Everybody tells you, if you're sleepless, you can't focus. So forget it. But if you cram your brain, you can't remember anything. <laughs> and yet, if you focus, you can do it. But you need to focus. You need to stop saying, oh, I'm tired. Oh, I wish I had slept. Oh, you know, I'm just, my eyes are itching and my head hurts. Yeah, fine. But get past all that. 
That's your discomfort zone, right? Ignore it. What are you there to achieve and why? If you can understand why you're doing something, then you know you can focus and actually do it. So that, that is the mind-body connection. We have only scratched the surface here. We, you know, in 21st century, we're only just beginning to see what that enables us to do. So, you know, this is a journey which has only just begun. How far it'll go, you know, nobody can tell you. You've mentioned marathons and incredible feats. And you also mm. talked about how when you withdrew from or when you retired from your competitive athletic career, you had some motivation, right, challenges. Um, but I have to say, in terms of the mind and body, there's also the question of how much is enough, right? Because we, there are people who are obsessed with always being stronger, faster, better, and so on. And that can take over your life, right? So for people who have jobs and families and they either can't or simply don't want to spend extensive amounts of time training, there, there's the old, um, the old, the old, I think it's Chinese phrase, he who does not know what is enough will never have enough, right? So hmm. at what yeah. level do you empower people to make the decision of uh, figuring out for themselves, this is fit enough? This is actually my issue with CrossFit. Hmm. I have a number of friends who, who were involved with CrossFit, and none of them stuck with it because it's so demanding. It's so demanding. It's so brutal on the body. And it's just takes off over so much of your day in your life. It's unsustainable. And I think the same thing for competitive athletes, like you were saying, you don't want to get up at five in the morning and run five kilometers. Well, maybe you don't have to, right? Like what, what are your goals? Um, exactly. What are your thoughts on that? Having been on both sides of it. Yeah, I think, well, I think what you just said highlights a, a very real problem, which comes if you create an artificial kind of target. And if you say, look, this is my definition of fitness. Somebody who can run from zero to 112.5 seconds, can climb this wall in you know six seconds, and can lift 150 pounds, and then do you know 50 push-ups in 35 seconds. And you say, okay, that's that's pretty fit, but not everybody can do that. And a lot of people who will try that will get injured because you know they are not ready. They'll do it too quickly. They may do it improperly. There's all these reasons, and it'll only have a demotivating effect. And having an artificial target like that, I think it's okay in a competitive environment because there we need a standard we all need to work with. But in the general overall fitness is a right approach, it's, you know, it's something which doesn't fit. Fitness is something which should be part of your identity, you know, irrespective of how heavy you are, how fast, how strong. As long as you feel that your body is improving and gaining and it's part of who you are, then you'll keep it going. And at the end of the day, that's what we need to achieve. You know, the, the mind-body balance only comes if you feel comfortable in who you are. In order to feel comfortable in who you are, you need to get rid of all this negativity where you're being judged. You're saying, oh, is that all you can do? <laughs> so? So what? It really doesn't matter. Are you trying? Yes. Are you improving? Yes. That's fantastic. That's all we can ever ask of anybody. And I think that's the best, healthiest approach, both from a physical and a mental point of view. Because it gets rid of the artificiality of standards, which, you know, they are pretty meaningless if you take them out of their context. It gets rid of the approach where there's only one way to fitness. There isn't. There are as many ways to fitness as there are people. And it gets rid of the pressure to conform within a fitness or, or sort of health-oriented environment, which has been the artificial straitjacket of the past. We, we don't need that. You know, we want everybody to be free, as free as possible to exercise do as much as they can, 
improve at their own pace, mm-hmm. constantly, constantly redefine their horizons and have fun. And if they do all that, I think that's, that's transformative. <laughs> it transforms the individual and then it transforms their surroundings and then it transforms the world because at the end of the day, the world is us. You know, we make it up. It's not something imposed upon us. Yes, we come into it, but we shape it. And if we don't change ourselves, it won't change for us. What you've said reminds me of one of my pet peeves. I, I, I love what you said, but, you know, in Star Wars, there's this famous Yoda quote where he says, do or do not, there is no try. And I hate yeah. that because you have to try. Because if, yeah. if you go into things with the attitude of like, I'm either going to succeed or it's no good, it's a failure, it's totally wrong. It is. I, are, are you with me here on this? Or is, <laughs> yeah, I am, I am. Although I love Star Wars, yeah. I, I agree. I mean, I, like I think Yoda, at the time... <laughs> yeah, I think at the time when they said it, I think we need to take that context into account, what we knew in terms of fitness, and how fitness actually was shaped and, and perceived. And it was re- literally, you had winners and you had losers, and nobody in between, right? It wasn't, I'm going to do my best. Your best doesn't count. Did you win or did you lose? If you won, you were a loser. If you won, you're a winner. Winners we love, losers we hate. And you think, what the heck? Yeah. Why? At the end of the day, that's how you get to be a winner, right? By trying and trying and trying and trying and overcome your losses until, basically, you keep winning. So, I mean, in competitive martial arts, it's something which, for me personally, it was driven home. I had to lose a lot of fights before we started winning. And then once I got into a winning streak and analyzed it, I thought, you know, what is it that keeps me winning? And I could actually create that personal formula that kept me sharp. But in order to get to that, I had to lose. And then I had to think about it and overcome it and, and analyze it. And then I had to win and I had to lose again. And you think, why did I win that one and lost that one? What went wrong? You know, and that's, that's the process that actually we all have to undertake. We don't have to compete, but with ourselves. You know, every time we fall down, you know, we, we got off that particular, you know, we had, we said no chocolates for a month and we just gorged on, on chocolate cake <laughs> for two days. We said I'll train every day and we didn't train for a month. Okay, that's, that's fine. It happened. Understand why. What is it that actually stops you? Analyze it. Was it the belief that you can't do it? Did you just love staying in bed, which is fine, but you can stay in bed at any time, right? You don't have to just not train for that. So when you analyze, you think, ah, that's the barrier, and that's the barrier. And let's remove this barrier, remove that barrier. And suddenly you find yourself developing because you understand how you function. And if we lump you in the label, loser, <laughs> it, you know, you stop analyzing. You feel like a loser. And nobody's a loser. So well, I think, you know, you're, you're spot on in, in your peeve hate. <laughs> well, and, and motivation. I mean, you've tapped into motivation, which I think people's motivations are going to be different. I have a couple of friends who are avid runners, and both of them, it's because they've lost a lot of weight. And the one guy had a great quote, really. He said that he runs every day because there's a fat man chasing him, <laughs> right? which, yeah. is, which is him. Um, yeah. But that's his motivation, right? So for somebody who's let's say struggling with some other issue, it might be different. And like you're saying, not one size doesn't fit all. And I want to be respectful of your time, David. So let me know if you need to run. Um, I did have a couple more things I want to ask you. Um, Usually I don't get into politics on the show, but (laughs) you're very outspoken on social media. So I'm going to do this sort of tactfully. Um, You're a big picture guy. You see a lot of um, things happening all over the world. What are some of the geopolitical trends and potential pitfalls that you're keeping an eye on right now? 
Oh wow, that's a loaded question. <laughs> let's totally shift gears. <laughs> yeah, it is. Okay, but let's let's talk about it because everything is actually linked. Yes. Okay. And if is. we think that right now, you know, depending on your political perspective, if you think that, hey, you know, my side is losing, the world is going to hell, or the opposite, you know, my side is winning, we're gonna get on top and, you know, burn everybody else because they've been burning us for for years. That will affect also your perception of the world. It will affect the way you feel psychologically, which will affect your mental world, which is going to impact your physical world. So all these things actually are linked. Um, is the world going through a challenging phase? Definitely. We are seeing change, which perhaps we don't, the kind we don't want to see. But you could argue that we have never, ever really wanted change, and we never change unless it's imposed upon us by conditions. We you know we're never ready to actually change. So I think whatever the challenge we're undergoing right now, whichever political camp you're in, the world is in a very uncertain, self-defining phase, which is going to be good moving forward because we're going to find out what works and what doesn't work. So you know, to, to sort of create an example, suppose you know um, I have a very sort of open-minded, connective, liberal point of view, and you say, no, what we need to do is build walls and hide in the little barracks and create little tribes and be happy in those tribes. Your point of view may be perfectly true. We won't know until we try it. So having a fight of ideologies, I think that's ridiculous. Let's look at the practicalities and look at the data, and let's connect as people, because the moment you have ideologies fighting, you don't have people fighting, you have labels against labels. You have liberals against you know, um, recessionists, you have, um, you know, left against right. And I think that's wrong because people basically want the same thing always. We all want some kind of security. We all want some kind of ability to define ourselves. We want some means of survival and want to feel that we actually have value. Everybody wants that. Whether you, you know, you go to the extreme case where you, you know, you become a, a neo-Nazi, you still want those things. That's why, that's why you're doing it. Maybe be misguided, but we have no way of the conditions that actually led you to that. So to judge somebody just by that, I think is very um, small-minded, and it doesn't do us um, a great service as, as 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 a species. So let's try and keep the human connection going. Let's try and keep the dialogue going, and let's use data to see how correct these decisions are. Uh, ultimately, what works for some will work for everybody. And that's what we need to do. We need to create that that flow. And if that works in a geopolitical level, it also works at a personal one. And if it works at a personal one, then you know we constantly develop because of that. So that open-minded, positive approach which we have, if we can maintain it, it impacts those around us, irrespective of whether you know they're black, white, yellow, whatever, you know, men, women, and they begin to respond to that. I love the way you bring everything back to data. That it's sort of like the truth will set you free. Um, I, I wonder though, well, not I wonder, there are certainly traps there too. Like for example, I heard recently about an initiative, a medical initiative that says doctors have too much freedom in the hospital system to determine the therapy for their patients. So uh, the, the argument was that doctors are using outdated treatments that are less effective than the new ones. And hmm. the, the point of view of the person was that we know what the best practices are, and that's all that should be permitted. So that sounds great until you realize that that freezes innovation, right? Because if you don't let people have the freedom to try different things, 
Some are going to be worse, some are going to be better, but you're never going to get any better than where we are now. So at what point does data become its own sort of honeypot where you get into it and you feel like you have the answers, but you close yourself off to anything else? That's a great question. Um, that's a challenge for every company out there right now, which applies data mining principles to its operations. And that's pretty much every company out there right now. So essentially, the trap is to fall for your own hype, if you like. We have in place the tools to capture data at a rate of we've never been able to do it before. We have the means to analyze it. And we have the ability now to actually see a more granular picture than ever before. It's not the only picture of reality we have. So moving forward, we still need to test, verify, test, and trial new things. So um, that you know, that's the kind of that's the kind of um, uncertainty towards the future, if you like, which is becoming the norm. So anybody who thinks, oh, this is what I need to do. Capture all this data, analyze it, create a model, apply that model, rest easy for the rest of my <laughs> life. It's not going to work because we live in a world which is incredibly fluid. Everything is connected and everything has accelerated. So if you compare the world we have now to that of the 16th century, if you like, the connections were still there. You know, you know, there were still shipping lanes across the world. You know, if you sent a letter to one from you know one country to another, it would take a few months, but it would get there. You could still have the equivalent of a of a forum thread via post. It just took several months to years for people to correspond with each other. Everything happened at a very sedate pace, and that gave us a full sense of security and stability. And now everything happens really, really quickly. And that gives a sense of, again, a false sense of insecurity and instability. Mm. It's not. It's our reality. And we need to adapt to that. And does it make us feel uncomfortable? Yes. And we must deal with that and learn to actually live with it. Um, we're not going back to the world of our fathers or our forefathers. And we are stepping into the future. And the future is that, you know, that has that fluidity and uncertainty built in. So everything which we see as new and shiny, yes, great, let's adopt it. Let's check how it works for us. Let's see how effective it is. Let's not rest that this is it. You know, it's a holy grail because it's not. So that's how we learn to avoid that trap. And this is a lesson which hasn't yet been learned at a business level. It's really hard to take on board at a personal level. It will have, you know, quite a few incidents before we actually learn to apply it because, you know, we're going to see companies crash and burn because they just rested on their laurels and they thought this was it. We're going to have individuals who feel that, oh, you know, my world is just falling, you know, shift, sifting through my fingers like, like sand because everything's changing. Yes, but let's move forward. How do you actually deal with that? And at the individual level, you know, we have to create this strength of identity to actually deal with uncertainty. We have to get back to the core values of who are you? Why do you get up in the morning? Why do you, why are you still effective in the world? What makes you function? These are difficult questions because... The answer is only comes after a lot of introspection. At a personal level, it's perhaps easier than a company level. But companies have to undertake that. They need to learn why do they function the way they do? What is it that actually makes them special? What gives them value? What makes us special? What gives us value as individuals? If we work that out, nothing can shake us. You know, we, we have that bedrock which we need. That's very profound. Uh 
You've, you've put it in a very succinct way, but I think uh, those are definitely some words to ponder. We started off talking about physical fitness and the Derby program. We've got away from that. Do you think that the same type of initiative that your team, Nayla Ray's team, has done with Derby could be expanded into other areas of life to address some of these larger sort of societal issues that, that uh, you clearly have your, your eye on, your finger on the pulse of? Yeah, well, it can, but it won't be easy. And the reason it won't be easy is because as a business model, it basically turns the entire value pyramid on its head. And and I will explain what I mean by that. Essentially, up till about the 20th end, end of the 20th century, we had a very specific idea of value. It was something which we paid for in order to get something which we didn't know, but had a perceived value to us because of what we paid for it. So if you want to go to a gym, for instance, and my gym cost, you know, my gym membership was about $25 a month and yours was $500 a month. Well, your your gym was clearly better, right? Because you couldn't be paying that much money with something which was the same as mine or even worse. So you, you must have had better facilities, probably. Definitely better people in there, more committed, you know, athletes used to come in there, maybe, you think, right? Definitely have better instructors. The truth of it was that, no, it wasn't. Maybe yours was in a better area where people could afford to pay more. So you paid 500 bucks a month and I paid 25 and maybe we got the same out of it. And you think, whoa, how is that possible? We couldn't compare that, right? Because we'd be operating in different spheres. My neck of the woods, where 20 people paid 25 bucks a month, wouldn't really touch upon your neck of the woods, where people paid 500 bucks a month. Derby changed a lot. So essentially, you know, it's, it's, its value model is try this. If it works for you, give us what you think is worth to you, if you can. If we apply that to every other part of life, it's transformational. I mean, let's think about Nike. What if Nike said, all our shoes are free? Just walk in, grab what you can, if it fits. And if it does, and you can, give us what you think is worth. Well, some people might give 10 bucks, some people might give nothing, and some people might give 500 bucks. Now, Nike doesn't charge 500 bucks for shoes. But it would get it, right? There are models and there are restaurants in Manchester which have a free, come in and eat free model. Give it what you like. Now, the average um, price per head in a paying restaurant is uh, 25 pounds, which is about 35, $40. The average amount of money they get in a free restaurant is 15 to 20% more than that. And it's free. Okay, in order to do that, they never say, they never mention prices, but the setting is beautiful, the food is beautiful, you're paying for the experience. I mean, at the end of the day, you don't go into a restaurant to eat, right? You can do that at home. You go into a restaurant to have an experience. And if we get rid of the price tag where they say, come on in, oh, here's a table, and we're going to get you some money now. Okay, since you got the table, we don't really care about the experience because you're going to pay anyway. That's what you're here for. You're sitting there. You're sitting down already. So if your experience is not perfect, it really doesn't matter because you're still going to pay for the food. But if you hadn't paid for the food, wouldn't we work really hard to make sure your experience is perfect? Mm. Yeah. And if we work really hard to make sure your experience is perfect, we would have to value you as a person in order to create that personal, that perfect experience. We'd have to think, hey, what does Alexander really value when he comes into our restaurant? Is it the quiet? Is it the setting? Is it the food? Is it a combination of all those things? Is it the service, the personalization? And then we'd give it to you. And then you'd really value it because we really valued you. And we thought about what you'd like and we gave it to you. Instead of, 
here's somebody sitting there in a table 5A. <laughs> he ordered soup. <laughs> that's five nine, 5.99, thank you. <laughs> right, that's, that's it, right? So that kind of transformational approach to value, it's applicable to many other parts of life. There are many experiments taking part right now. The freemium model, for instance, that's part of it. You know, we're experimenting with these things. But it's going to take quite some time before it becomes widely adopted because it takes a lot of bravery, a lot of thinking. And, you know, there's so much uncertainty you're taking on board because, you know, there be costs a lot to actually set up. And you never know if you're going to get what you need just to maintain it. And the same for every other business. You know, those free restaurants, they cost a lot. They pay their staff, they pay their rent, they pay their expenses, they pay their rates, they pay their taxes. They don't know if people will be willing to give them enough. Now, so far it's working out, okay? People are actually always, always deliver. When you deliver value, they actually can see and, and measure. But applying it broadly, I'd love to see it happen. <laughs> We shall see. It's a it's a step incremental step by step approach. And you and I are old enough to remember when shareware first started and the five and a quarter inch discs. It's like if yeah. you like it, you know, send me a buck, whatever. Um, That's right. Yeah, yeah. Now this is turning into sort of now it's crowdfunding, right? But now this idea of sort of the shareware economy, which is what you're describing, mm. it's a people connection always. You know, it's if people, you know, the moment you connect with people, you begin to value the values they stand for. You find the similarities and you begin to establish uh, acceptable standards. It's interesting too that we find out what people don't value, right? The things that people are not willing to pay for um, that they get for free. It's probably a different conversation. But um, I want to make sure I don't monopolize your entire day. I know it's evening where you are. So um, why don't we just wrap it up? Maybe tell us uh, how people can find you online. You mentioned you are uh, finishing up one book. You have a number of other books that you've already published. Um, maybe for folks who might be interested in some more of your deep thoughts, uh, how, <laughs> how can they find you and how can they uh, find your books? Well, you can personally find me at davidamorland.com. Uh, I'm also very active within Google+, where I usually engage in very long conversations in threads with people because I put a lot of original posts up. You're the, only, on Twitter. you're the only one using Google Plus, right? You know that. <laughs> uh, there's quite a few of us. It's just, a, you know, it's a difficult environment to actually get engaged in if you don't know anybody. So I appreciate that. But, you know, when you connect with people there, it becomes pretty amazing. I'm active on Twitter, but be warned, 140 characters really challenges me. <laughs> I feel lobotomized. Yeah. So my conversation there isn't always very effervescent. Um, you can find me also within the Derby project. I'm fairly active in the Hive when I can. Uh, it's usually in my past to midnight um, hours. And, uh, you know, the threads, they are pretty amazing. You know, we talk about fitness and how people get have all these questions. And every time we start on a particular thing, um, whether it's somebody's injury or how somebody developed a fitness or a particular question, which has to do with how you develop specific aspects of what you do, it gets pretty deep. And, you know, we cite studies at the end of it. We, you know, we actually bring in quite a lot of stuff. So that's always uh, very encouraging to do. Terrific. Okay. Well, David, thank you so much for coming on and sharing so freely. Maybe after your book comes out, we can talk again. Yeah, definitely. I'd, I'd love that. That's it for this episode. Thanks for listening. You can find show notes and links at CapableCivilian.com, and you can let me know your thoughts through the Capable Civilian Facebook group or on Twitter by following at Capable Civilian. Until next time.